0: hi venters welcome to another episode of the just checking in podcast i'm your host freddy cocker and this podcast is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is someone who is covering an issue very few people in the world wish to cover, outside of now myself and a few others brave enough to venture into the subject. Stephen J. Shaw is a data scientist and writer. He is also the director and producer of the film Birth Gap, A Childless World. Now, some of you listeners may recall the film Children of Men when you hear such a title, which is a film that came out in 2006 based on a book by author P.D. James and his 1992 novel The Children of Men, which painted a dystopian planet Earth in 2027 where humans had stopped having children after two decades of infertility that left society on the brink of collapse and their hopes rested on a pregnant African woman who is a refugee to the United Kingdom and refugees have essentially become enemies of the state. Many saw this film as essentially reality-based science fiction, but in Steven's film, this fiction could become a reality for many countries across the world if they do not arrest this trend of impending population collapse now. In Birth Gap, it analyses the data of falling birth rates across the world the societal, economic and cultural reasons this is happening and what the consequences of it will be. Stephen also speaks to a range of people both in the field of fertility medicine, couples who don't have children and most powerfully men and women who are involuntarily childless. Now I've interviewed previous guests Patricia Falks and Dr Robin Hadley who both advocate for greater awareness and compassion for involuntarily childless men and women like them so this is an issue I'm very passionate about covering. In this episode we discuss Stephen's academic journey, a deep dive into the film and all of the issues it explores through a mental health lens and the reaction it's had upon its release both positive and negative. We also discuss the mental toll that doing the film had on Stephen himself and hearing these hugely traumatic stories of grief from the interviewees who were involuntarily childless. For Stephen's mental health, we discussed the impact that his divorce had on his mental health and the trauma of being separated from his children. Thankfully, he has a good relationship with his ex-wife now, but 20 years on from his divorce, he still feels trepidation about settling down again. So this is how my conversation with Dr. Stephen Shaw went. Stephen, welcome to the Just Check In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. I already knew some about the topic of involuntary childlessness before watching your brilliant but also deeply unsettling and at times terrifying film for the information it conveys. So I'm really pleased to be speaking to you today, mate. How are you, first of all, and how has the response to the film been? The response has been quite phenomenal, to be honest with you. I think right now almost half a million people
1: have watched it online, part one. It's become quite topical in some podcasting, uh, you know, in the podcast world. And the reason I made the documentary was for people to become aware and talk about falling birth rates, population decline, maybe collapse, and indeed unplanned childlessness. So on on that measure, I'm very pleased
0: excellent mate we've got a lot to talk about including the film and also your own journey so without further delay are you ready to start the show sure looking forward i want to start your podcast by talking about your wider academic journey Stephen. as the film involves this but i also want to talk a little bit about other things too so first of all how did you start this journey what inspired you and the journey to where you are as a data scientist today Yeah, I
1: don't have a very orthodox uh, academic (laughs) path, I have to say, which perhaps makes me qualified to, in some ways, make this documentary because I think part of the reason our societies are getting into this tangle is we're spending so much time focused on education first and career development after that, and family development after that, if you have time. But that's maybe getting a little bit ahead. You know, myself, I studied, uh, I, I chose back in the UK to study engineering only because I knew I liked math and physics. I was told at the time uh, by a family friend that the IT boom was over, really, you know, in the <laughs> 1980s, that there was little point in studying IT, so I should do something more fundamental. And as it happened, they spent most of my time in the computer labs. Decided after two years, that engineering really wasn't a career I wanted to pursue and opened a small software development company while at uni. And that really waylaid my career, my academic career, rather. Four years later, I decided I wanted to complete my uh, education to at least complete a degree. I didn't want to go back and finish engineering. That, that was for sure. And I found under the French system that they have kind of a blended undergraduate graduate degree program. And I was accepted into the French system to study under English language, uh, English language teaching and MBA. Um, so, yeah, I graduated with a combination of effectively an undergrad and grad degree, age 27, in Paris. Um Beyond that, went on to set up a dot-com company, something I've done, you know, up until really 10 years ago. Uh, Data analytics became my thing. The dot-com boom was was taking off in the late 90s. And uh, I decided in the end to, I think the old adage is to, you know, during a cold rush, make shovels or spades. I never know the difference between shovels and spades. Uh, Make hay
0: while the sun shines, something like that?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, you know, don't take the risk of being a gold digger because really the chance of actually making your fortune digging for gold is really quite small. A few will make it big and most won't make anything. But if you sell shovels, you know, you're going to make something uh, for sure. You <laughs> so I thought data would be quite a useful thing one day. And back in those days, you know, we were getting a few hundred rows of data, you know, per week, per month to do analysis. And of course, these days, it's a, a millions and millions of rows mm. per per day that we're aggregating so that took me into the, the data analytics world which all has nothing to do with the topic of this podcast, but you you wanted to know kind of academically where I came came from. What Mm. did happen once I got into data, I started to academically kind of engage with the latest techniques. I worked with professors, we hired PhDs, we kind of were working with academia to develop the techniques, many of which are commonplace now in terms of advanced data analytics. I myself then became a student once again. I uh, enrolled after some summer classes at Harvard in one of their degree programs, and I'm still a degree candidate at at Harvard working towards a master's in data science which I thankfully have a few years to complete given everything else that's going on but yeah I've become
0: a lifelong learner. You've touched on there about the evolution of data science from where it was when you started to where it is now where do you see the future of it because at the start I imagine you're flying by the seat of your pants in a way but now you know we've seen an explosion in AI and how it's being used across the globe I'm sure you've you've used it positively in many ways to help your work but there's also a lot of Ethical questions it's brought up, and not just when it comes to chatbots and chat GPT, customer services, even hugely dark and very disturbing inevitable trends that I could have foreseen, which is AI generated child sexual abuse, for example. Where do you see the future of data science going forward? Are you excited or are you a little bit scared?
1: No, I'm excited. I mean, ultimately, it's
0: about knowing the most accurate information
1: possible. And with data science, there's always a limitation, um, and you always want to go further, deeper, more granular to to answer questions. So anything that pushes that forward is good. So just to, in simple terms, separate different types of AI, what we're really getting enthusiastic about now is what's called generative AI, the ability for AI to generate words, to generate images, to understand images even. It's, It's quite phenomenal. What I've been involved in is more predictive AI, using AI to predict data. It's a different branch now. The slight challenge you have with that is that when predictive AI comes up with a prediction, you don't know why it made that prediction. You just got to accept that, well, that that's it's like a black box. So there are challenges trying to understand if it took everything into account that it might ought to do, given the world is changing. So for example, we run multiple models, AI is just one of them. Other more statistical techniques allow you to, you know, look inside that black box to understand the parameters that have been chosen and to to potentially get a deeper understanding. So I'm not sure AI yet in terms of predictive modeling will become something that people just trust. Without wanting to examine certain assumptions further, and but will we get there? Yeah, I am very sure we will. But yeah, Mm. no, I am not threatened by that at all. It's Mm. it's all about interpreting the results ultimately.
0: Let's talk about your brilliant and brilliantly also depressing films, uh, Stephen. Which is Birth Gap. So, Part One has been out for a few months, like you've said, and I've had VIP access, shall we say, to the upcoming Part Two. Just tell me first why you wanted to make this film and tell this story and stories of a lot of the people that are involved, which very few other people, if any, want to touch as a subject.
1: Yeah. So how do we get from what I've just been talking about, data science, to (laughs) a a documentary at all? I mean, Mm -hmm. just to be clear, I still don't consider myself to be a filmmaker. I came across data in early 2016, which really haunted me that I wasn't aware of just how fast birth rates have been falling across effectively every uh, industrialized nation. I knew about Japan. I knew a bit about Italy and Spain. But people were writing that off as an anomaly that Japan it's work life balance, or that japan 's just different and Oh, just to be clear i I now live in Japan, so I can kind of say <laughs> those things I feel you know part Japanese almost and, you're uh, an expert now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to some extent, and in southern Europe, people were blaming youth unemployment twenty years ago yes, and that seemed in Italy. Rea- yeah, yeah yeah, that seemed a reasonable thing to blame, so i I never you know examined that further. When I saw, you know, back in 2016, that actually these rates have not, even though youth unemployment improved, birth rates did not improve, and actually the same things happening in Germany and Switzerland and in, you know, Austria and Portugal, and now also in the UK and France and, you know, effectively U.S., Canada, Australia, every uh, industrialized nation and beyond, and I started to look for out of curiosity trends as to, you know, what was common across all these countries at the times that this phenomenon kicked in. And I found really that academia was looking at individual localized trends. So that again, it was work life balance in Japan, but for me, it was like, no, this is a global trend. There has to be a common explanation to explain much of it. And, um, after several months research, I, I thought someone's got to dive into the data and I thought well maybe that's going to be my task because I believe I have the skills and I'm connected to academia to pull in the right people to kind of collaborate with this and to explain how I ended up making a documentary my uh, my younger son told me that no one uh, reads anymore no one reads books that was my big idea I was going to write a book he told me I had to make a documentary and I, I told him that's that then I can, I can never it possibly.
0: can still lead to a book mate you never know <laughs> well no it's on the way very slowly okay years, like, oh. eight
1: years in so hopefully I'll exclusive
0: get <laughs> yeah 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 I'm hoping
1: early next year it will be out telling the same story but long story short I met a wonderful videographer through a mutual friend Elise uh Elise Miller Kostgrove and we set out on a journey that I thought was going to take us to Europe and Japan maybe it would take a year I thought she thought two years
0: it ended up taking seven years and and uh, we went to 24 countries wow.
1: to, to examine this phenomenon
0: in the film you explain how many countries across the world have their fertility rates declining but also something called the population tipping point can you explain that term for my listeners and why it's tipping so dangerously in the other way yeah or the wrong way
1: yeah so the first term to explain demographers use the term replacement level that's when two parents have an average two children that survive into adulthood. Uh, some children, sadly, don't make it into adulthood still. So we say 2.1 is the average number of children parents should be having to reach that replacement level, at which point over the long term, in simple terms, populations would be stable. 70% of the world's population are living in countries below that level now, 70%. And that now includes India, Bangladesh, many surprising places that most people may not be aware of. The reason I call it a tipping point is that once countries settle below replacement level for an extended period of time, say a decade, no country in history is known to have ever recovered. Nations just fade away over generations. Um, So therefore, to me, this is the biggest crisis facing us because we don't know of any solutions. I think every other crisis, which may be you know equally or greater in terms of you know risk to the planet, et cetera, I think we know uh, or have some clue what we would do or what the you know, resolution might be. In the case of birth rates, so much has been tried by so yes, many countries yeah. and there's no known solution. So that's why I switched gear and decided to commit the rest of my time, however long that is, to, to this topic.
0: As I said in the intro, Children of Men is a film you'll be well aware of, and it was a film adaptation of a novel in the 90s, and the film came out in 2006. Now, at the time, it was quite a unique concept. It was quite a well-received film, but it felt very dystopian. It felt like reality-based science fiction, as I said in the intro. Is it now in danger of being prophetic? In general terms,
1: yes. yeah, It absolutely is, and it's quite, it's quite funny because I hadn't seen that, that movie. Um, and whilst we are filming one or maybe two of the crew members that, that came on board to the project kept mentioning his film, Children of Men. And I thought, the title somehow didn't seem to kind of yeah, respond to it. it doesn't to, conf- to...
0: exactly convey it, does it? Yeah. <laughs> no,
1: no, Children of Men. Okay, I'll look at that someday. And then I did watch it. And and the title really doesn't do it. It's just to summarize. It's about a world where no one or almost no one can have children.
0: And how it becomes dystopian, and how basically mm. it becomes tribal. And young people are celebrities because they're young rather than for their innate ability. Yeah, yeah. Refugees yeah, yeah. are known as enemies of the state and they're treated like animals. And yeah. Well,
1: it, it, you know, and let's just say it's a very dark film. You know, a world mm. without children becomes a very dark place. And that's exactly, to be honest with you, what was in my mind going back to the very start. Like a world without children is really going to be quite a different world where will you. I don't know, have the same hopes and aspirations. Will society break down in some way because there is no future? And I think that film captures really quite well how I worry that, and let me put it this way, because it's an important point I want to stress in a succinct way. I worry that there are going to be changes to society that will in many ways make people more despondent and will potentially breed a generation of politicians or ideologists who try to captivate us into ideas that are going to you know turn the world into even more concerning places and i just want people to be aware that a world without children is is simply different and we need to be very conscious of that
0: you ask in the film and so many people why they aren't having children a very simple question but you ask it to loads of people and the answers are very different they're very striking some people don't seem to have thought about the answer at all some people have quite succinct and concise answers about it. So from that research, all the data you gathered, what economic, social and cultural reasons did you find for that question first? Well, that was the fascinating thing initially,
1: even looking from the data that this is not cultural because you have the same trend happening at the same time in Japan and South Korea and France and Germany and Italy and now the US, Russia and China for sure. So this is not cultural at all. And it's happening across every form of economic strata. The exception would be still parts of sub-Saharan Africa where larger families are commonplace. And we went there, you know, we filmed there. But that's a different world where there's still, unfortunately, moderately high levels of extreme poverty. I say moderately Mm. high because actually
0: poverty is coming down very fast in much of Africa. And there's a link between economic labor and children in those parts, I guess, as well. Yeah. Yes, that and the culture of yes, know, having of course,
1: boys yes. is therefore seen as a good thing. But mm-hmm. once those countries reach a point where you know there is running water and you don't need quite so many hands you know, around the home, then education of children becomes a priority and you see a sudden focus on smaller families. So you know, if we park that for a moment, because we were all in that situation one to two centuries ago, that was the norm, large families were the norm. Now we're in a world where to answer your question there really is no economic significant linkage here i mean i could go into a little bit more but in simple terms to get to the point all these people around the world in terms of their differing answers were all really saying one thing which was not yet you know i want kids but not just now i've got to do other things first and that might be advanced career or it may be look i feel i haven't got enough money yet i i I need to do something first so there is this tendency from large numbers of people to want to wait. I will just say, by the way, of course, some people simply said they do not want children. Sure. that happened that is a minority um you know that's probably somewhere between five
0: and ten percent and those numbers are pretty consistent um <laughs> everywhere and yet they are getting a lot of the media at the moment yeah. the child free by choice which i don't agree with but there we go yeah yeah i also don't like the
1: terminology i don't think, mm. I think
0: that i'm they, only using the be... term that's in the established narrative yeah well yeah, that's right. what they
1: want yeah. you know frankly freddie you know that's what they want they want us to think that children are harmful like something you should be free from you know just like disease oh when you care, think about it that way sure yes yeah yeah, yeah it's yeah. not they're, they're just childish by choice that's what we should be uh okay uh, saying yeah.
0: accurately These, yeah well, you spoke there about the not yet angle and how have and you analyze this in the film economic events or economic shocks is probably the better term affected these decisions so for example the 2008 financial crash i think you mentioned the we'll come to japan later on but there was a 1970s oil um incident or oil crisis i think yeah. in japan which oil caused shock. that well, well global sure, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 sure yeah so so how have these events for example affected childlessness rates in the US which was 1 in 3 by 2018 which blew me away yeah so
1: changing societal norms, by definition, a societal norm is the norm, and changing them takes extended periods of time. It's hard to break societal norms. But what we've seen is that when there are significant financial events, such as the oil shock in the early '70s, which affected Japan as the world's biggest oil importer, but also affected Italy and much of Europe as well, and uh, many other countries,
0: like Ukraine and, and the Russia war with the fuel crisis, is it? <laughs> like there's another yeah. thing to consider? Yeah. Well, anytime there's yeah. a
1: crisis, if you you have a significant number of people having children at a younger age. What it does is almost overnight transform the timing of when people start families to being well later, you know, a few years later. And that's a natural consequence, it appears, given that there are financial uncertainties. So less people will have children in their early 20s. Some more will have the late 20s, and some will have children in their 30s. That very quickly, within a few, and I mean within three to four years, becomes a new societal norm, waiting to have a child. And the reality is that once that becomes a new norm, a significant number of people having delayed childbearing into their 30s will not have children, Mm. and therefore... We have this large increase in what I call unplanned childlessness, people simply intending to wait that little bit longer to pursue their career, understandably, or to find the right partner, understandably, or see the world, understandably. So the shocks themselves are a trigger. They're not the cause, because after the shocks are over, things never revert. It simply adjusts the the societal norm to delay parenthood.
0: As I watched a film and you showed the graphics of the birth gap rates across the world, to me, and I don't know if this was the message you wanted to convey, but it almost felt like a virus literally sapping the numbers of people slowly but surely. Would that be an accurate reflection?
1: I mean, mathematically, it's the same. You you have something that spreads. And so if you look at what happened in Italy and Japan at exactly the same moment in time, this was not a Japan-led thing, it was Japan and much of Europe, in 73, 74. It never relented in those countries. There was never a time when it kind of dialed itself back and then increased again. It wasn't like a wave. Once it locked in, it locked in. And it hit rural areas and urban areas in the same way at the same time. So it wasn't like an urban phenomenon. And people tend to think of this as an urban can phenomenon. Think of that,
0: yeah, so like an established narrative about it, yes. Yeah. Y-
1: yeah, urban fertility is lower, but it's not this trend started in the urban areas now. If you then wind the clock forward, if you were to speed this up, which in the documentary, the animations, the maps do a little bit, you see this starting in certain places and then spreading, just spreading, 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 relentlessly spreading. And therefore is that, you know, the way I I, I think, um, you know, a good analogy is if you saw these maps, if you saw the way it spread, you would never say this is a local problem. This is, you know, something happened in Japan, different to Italy, different to Germany. You'd say this is a global problem. And it is, of course, which really questions why we spent so much time trying to identify local factors. And we still do that now. Demographers, I feel a little sorry for them because they're focused too much on the local when this is really a global phenomenon.
0: I want to focus now on those two countries which are so much more affected than say other countries which is Japan and South Korea and because this population collapse isn't coming in say the very very distant future. But likely the next 10 to 20 years, such as the state of fertility rate is coming. Um, So for the listeners, South Korea had a 69% birth gap and a 0.98 fertility rate in 2018. And the latter is probably easier to understand, which is very low. And that's despite government policies to encourage children, publicity campaigns. So for these two countries, why isn't it working?
1: I mean, I'm happy to focus on these countries, but I just want to say, first of all, you know, Europe's not that different other than perhaps immigration. Uh, It's kind of abated it a little bit. The policies, therefore, you're talking about, which may be to do with putting a little bit more money each month in parents' pockets. It might be opening more kindergartens, cheaper daycare, all those great things, free education. If you look across the world, none of those actually work. Or if they do, they work for a very short period of time as people who are planning to have kids anyway take advantage of the the bonus and have kids a little bit sooner and the birth rate actually then ends up often dipping below where it was before. So to me, it's let's just go back for one second to Mm -hmm. why having children in your 30s is actually quite dangerous. One big factor is probably obvious that the, uh, particularly a, a woman's ability to, to get pregnant and carry a baby to term diminishes. It diminishes faster for some compared to others, but that's not the biggest reason here. The biggest reason is more simple. It's not having a partner who's ready at that right time. So you get to 32 and you might not have a partner. Suddenly it might feel, I want a baby, but you don't have a well a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. You, My anxiety
0: is increasing as you speak, Stephen. <laughs> uh-huh. uh,
1: well, we can take this offline if yeah. you want, but uh, now that's a lot of people. And men actually, by the way, overestimate their chances because while technically we are able to have children that much later in life, we still got a, you know... That's mature, why it's helping. We've current... still
0: got a biological clock. It's not as obviously pronounced as women. Yeah.
1: No, but you also have to find a woman of... You know, oh, yeah, of course that, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but that's the point everyone forgets. You know, g- good luck, you know. Uh, it just gets harder. You're competing with younger men. I like to say you're competing with your younger self, you know, who, in effect, is someone out there right now who, you know, has got everything you have, but just might be five years younger. So the competition heats up for a man in a way we don't think about. So I I just to go back, you know, it happens. It's such a sad thing about people who are in long term relationships in their 20s into early 30s think they're ready. One of them does. And then there's a breakup or there's a Mm. divorce. You know, finding that right time, it doesn't get easier. Uh, We get more and more tired. And then the idea sets in, well, maybe maybe your friends already have kids and they're already seven, eight years old. So do I want to be the one with the youngest kids? Or do I want to be a parent, you know, going through, you know, college years with a kid when I'm in my 60s? Those are factors that that kick in. So it's multiple reasons. Now, you asked about Korea and, and Japan, you know, what's happening there. The policies don't work. If there's a policy to encourage someone to have a child, but they don't have a partner yet or the partner's saying, well, yeah, I'm not ready yet. You know, my career's not at the right point. Maybe next year it's not as simple as throwing finance at it. it is such a personal decision at the end of the day, you know, an advocate of everyone should be able to have the number of kids they want. There should be no coercion to have kids if you don't want them or vice versa. So I think governments have got a limited role in terms of direct policies I know you want to focus on the the situation Are you raised Japan and Korea I could talk for a long time because I live in the region. I've been here for six mm. years. But let, let me just share that right now in Japan, hiring young people has become, you know, there's a huge skill shortage. There's a huge people shortage now. And it's affecting employers in, in a very big way. It's starting to really manifest itself through that shortage of people and government policies, even if they were to work, let let me just wrap this up by saying Mm -hmm. this, even if Japan's birth rate were to increase to 2.1 tomorrow, which it won't, Japan would still see 40, 50 years of falling population because it's already baked into the system. There are already so few young people to have children Mm. that we're gonna be left in this world with so many old people to look after. And that's
0: really the the crux of the social economic problem, how we Mm. adjust to these aging societies. Mm. I've got a few more questions on Japan because I've always wanted to go it's a beautiful country I love Japanese music city pop is one of my favorite genres from the 1980s there's so many artists that I love from that but the explosion in childlessness in Japan has reached the point where one in three people since 1990 are now childless so from the outside and rightly so Japan is seen as this country of a global leader of technology efficiency productivity culturally a a very hard-working nation you know, every Japanese person I've met who's immigrated here is a very strong work ethic, um, incredibly nice, friendly people. What is the future of the country with the work that you've done that you've seen is going to happen?
1: One of the things I'm now actively involved in is working with rural Japan, rural communities in terms of helping them prepare for the inevitable future that they're already confronting. We're talking of towns that just uh, were where there are just so few people there, unsupportable. The schools are I mean mm-hmm. Japan Japan. You visited on average, one, didn't
2: you?
0: Yeah. Takashi yeah. Madara?
1: yeah. Uh, Takashi Madara yeah. is very yeah. well pronounced. Um <laughs> you know, it's it's actually a suburban in, in northwest Tokyo, so it's yes. it's not that rural even. And you know, in that community, you know, it used to be a, a community filled with high rise apartments fancy at the time when they were built 50 years ago just filled with children and um, we show some of those uh, photos those in the documentary but but Horrible. now it's a world of old people there's just no children anymore so helping japan to adjust to the inevitable the fact that not every town is savable not every community is savable there's going to be a have to be a lot of readjustment and um, you know so this becomes a, a something very very tangible and real if you're outside central tokyo central tokyo you won't notice this and you probably never will because many people will gravitate towards the center of big cities but you don't have to go very far to find the real story
0: there's a small part of the film where you focus on an increase of lavish spending from couples on their dogs often seeing them as their children and you know i've spoken to patricia Fawkes and she's involuntarily childish she's an advocate and she talks about her dog as her child but these are young people these are young couples by and large and i saw a tweet a while ago which said something along the lines of people who previously had children get dogs, people who got dogs get plants and children are a luxury item. Is that playing into this attitude that we're now seeing a little bit? Well, I think there's a lot of effects to what has happened. And I think we still have
1: many of us, a desire to nurture. And if things haven't quite lined up the way you might've wanted again, you're 90%, 95% people, you know, all things being favorable. Either have or would have wanted children. I think other things kick in, so I see the the rise, in, I think the documentary showed this in Korea, uh, where you know I, I think pet goods are outselling baby goods in some way. I forget the exact metric around that, but it's 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 a boom, and you, you see it here certainly everywhere in, in Japan. It's sad to me because you know, this nurturing—I don't believe it's mostly people who really want to be nurturing animals or plants. Perhaps <laughs> I think it's people who really had intended or wanted to nurture children.
0: When it comes to tackling the problem, we've obviously discussed how so many of these policies or proposals aren't working. And two countries which you focused on, which tried to at least tackle the problem and and address it head on were the Nordic countries of Denmark and Norway. So the former had a campaign called Do It for Denmark, very obvious and blunt in a Nordic way. And the Norwegian Prime Minister addressed the issue in a public announcement four years ago. So they don't seem to have much of an effect. And there was an interview you also did, which on a, a quote I picked out, which was the director of that Danish procreation campaign, who said that having children now is a much bigger shift in someone's life versus two decades ago. Is there another reason here that because of perhaps the delayed adulthood element where people aren't being able to buy a house at their age and they just don't want to make these sacrifice changes that a child brings, that they just don't want to do it anymore?
1: Yeah. So uh, so this is entirely natural. I mean, we, we do have the ability to spend our younger years doing things that one, two generations ago were not possible in terms of seeing the world, in terms of you know, cultural experiences that, you know, who wouldn't want to you know, maximize the opportunity to do that? And certainly having a child can change that you know, some young parents who still point out that they manage to travel, you know, that uh, and you you go on a flight to, to, you know, many places and you'll find many young children there still. So, But mostly, yeah, I I think it's a natural phenomenon that people would probably want to maximize the time that they have before having children. What Mm -hmm. I do find, however, though, is that uh, that's in a certain context. The context is that people today tend to still believe that the chances of having a child well into our 30s are mostly good, not something to worry about. And if I can give you a a small survey I ran, and then a piece of hard data. So the survey asked 200 young American women when they thought a childless woman would have a 50-50 chance of ever becoming a parent. So these are people who had not yet decided when the right time was to, to start a family. 50% of the respondents said they thought it was age 40. Age 40. Holy shit. Yeah. 35% said age 35. 15% got the right answer, which is age 30. So if you look at the data, and this is not to do with technically being able to have a child. It's related to that, but it's also all the other factors about having a partner at the right time. Mm. Yeah. All those things. If you actually look at what actually happens, the outcome, in other words, if you have not had your first child as a woman by age 30, you have a 50-50 chance. Now, men is no more than two to three years older. So that's the outcome. The optimism I get through all of this, and they're actually, I, I didn't expect to become in any way really optimistic, frankly, as you may have s- seen the documentary. It paints a pretty gloomy picture of where we're headed. But it's showing the documentary to younger people has given me mm. some optimism because the reaction i mean there's one quote from one student actually at cambridge university who who watched it who said she felt haunted by the future That's she I might, was mate yeah yeah so you know haunted that she might not have kids and that was her dream so where she thought she had 10 more years until age 35 to even start thinking about settling down and therefore using those 10 years to pursue careers but i assume travel and do all those other things i mean she's done about turn in terms of realizing, my gosh, I need to have everything sorted by 30. So I think I therefore think it's not a case of children becoming deprioritized compared to other things. It's a case of people wrongly assuming that they have time to do other things before they get to the important priority of having kids. Mm -hmm. And I I think awareness is is therefore so important. Um, It's not my passion just to make young people aware Mm -hmm. that really the the window is much shorter than we might think.
0: Part two of the film really focuses on the stories of the involuntarily childless people, both men and women. And I want to focus on the women first. And a quote from Judy Day, who is an advocate for this issue like friend of the pod patricia folks and she said grief is a language that this lost tribe speaks fluently from your experience how and why does this grief because it is a grief we need to recognize that and i speak about this quite a lot how does it differ so greatly from traditional grief of when someone's actually died
1: well it it is a grief there's there's no question my my gosh it's a very heavy grief um Mm. Uh, you know, and I've been able to connect with Judy uh, a number of times and I'm, I'm a big supporter of, of that community. I do have kids, I should say that. I, you know, I have three children on my own. So when, when I started making the documentary, I was coming at it really from a data point of view, but to understand data and to find a common global trend, my approach was, well, I need to start interviewing, talking to people to try and figure out what up till now demographers have missed because there had been no, you know, a common connection that had been reported or discovered. So in talking to people was a surprise to me that people started opening up about their lives. I didn't expect that. And it's one of the reasons the documentary went from being a one, two year project to a seven year project, because I realized, gosh, this is important. These people want to talk and that for many of them, I don't think they would talked to anybody before, maybe even their family or closest friends, about what it felt not to have kids. And this was, you know, universal, meaning every country I went to, there were women. I show five women a documentary who had planned to be childless from a young age, never had the desire, didn't even perhaps understand the desire, and at that point, you know, you know, from that point forward, have never had any regrets. So that community exists. And part of the reason I think we have this divide is that those people who simply don't have the desire versus those people who did have the desire but ended up childless, perhaps it's just a difficulty in understanding each other. And I've, I've seen that online in the comments mm, so between those I. groups. Yeah. It's sad, frankly, there needs to be more understanding. But, you know, you asked what it's like in terms of, you know, the, the grief. You know, I can't compare. I'm I'm not in a position to compare the f- different forms of grief but a key learning for me in this, let's put it that way, is that you can grieve something you never had. And when you read, you know, I read the other day, someone make a comment about this, that you're grieving all of the children that you never had. The loss of potential. Yeah. But it's not just one grief. It's not a person. You're grieving an entire family and yet you don't know how many children you would have had or what they look like. So the grieving becomes harder to some, at least. Hmm. Um, I, I know if, Jody and others were listening to this. That I know they want me to be saying that there is hope for this group. That there is a way to come together and to kind of give back to communities and societies. And and there absolutely is. But I don't think we should diminish, you know. And we're not, you know, we're not sensitive to
0: our societies. We, you know, no, people, no, one wants people, to st- no one wants to stare at that pain, Stephen. Very few of us want to stare at it. Yeah,
1: that's right, that's right. But yet, yeah, when you hear these stories, for example, of. Office days where families are you know encouraged to bring their kids into the office, and someone in the office setting having wanted kids and having to run to the bathroom and hide because they just can't cope with the idea of seeing their coworkers and their kids, or another story of you know three coworkers you know it's starting a meeting a little bit early, and two of them have kids, and they're each saying, "So how are your kids doing the whole pre chat is about kids." And they're completely ignoring the third person who doesn't have kids. They don't know his story, and he's just burning up inside, just listening to the stories about people's children. Well, of course we should be proud, uh, you know, of the children we have and be happy. I'm not saying for a moment that we shouldn't, but there needs to be greater sensitivity,
0: emotional intelligence, yeah, awareness, yeah, yeah.
1: awareness and delicacy. I, I, and again, this is going outside my specialty, but I've come to learn that we need to be thinking is everybody in this environment that we're you know having this event or this
0: conversation
1: with coming from the same
0: space or, or might this be difficult for some people in one of the interviews your translator has a very awkward conversation with her husband when she asks him about having children and he quite in my opinion rudely brushes it off with a sort of weird joke your translator is and was in the film 44 years old and we both know what the elephant in the room is how did you feel in the middle of that interview knowing what you do
1: you know it's um so the little bit of the backstory to that is that we we were filming this is in thailand uh, we we're filming in a monastery i interviewed a monk who uh, was dealing with a crisis of young people there so many men in particular you know, are turning to alcohol and drugs because you know, there's a breakdown in family. There's so much, you know, uh, but that's a, a, a you know a slight tangent, but it's another adjunct of all of this. And in a break, the translator you know, started to have a conversation with me. And I, I knew or sensed that she wanted to talk about this. And I, I asked, well, you know, are you married? Have you talked to your husband about this? And she said, we've never talked. We've never had a conversation about having kids. And that she wanted kids. And I I knew we were going to meet his husband later. We are going to go to kind of for a lunch break. And uh, he was coming along. And uh, you you see it live. I mean, you mm. see, you know, I sit them down. I, I told her, okay, you cannot talk to him off camera. You can't rush up now. But I think she was quite nervous. In fact, I think she was grateful mm-hmm. that the situation unfolded the way it did. And, yeah, it's evident he he, he, he wasn't serious at least at that point in life about having kids and maybe he walked off because he didn't want to confront it maybe Mm. he has his own personal issues around what you know whatever journey they'd been on to that point in time but it was um it was heartbreaking
0: the most heartbreaking story in the film for me it gets me quite emotional thinking about it is annie's who started out very optimistic when she spoke with you but during the course of the film unfortunately it it didn't end very well for Annie. I I mean hopefully it's perhaps picked up for her since then but can you just tell the listeners about her story?
1: Yeah where where should I start? Annie um, was based in Washington DC when we met her. I should start the story this way because going back to the very start of the Documentary filmmaking, I would go and talk to anybody and everybody about this topic. You know, I I was so curious. (laughs) And also realized that, you know, if you approach to the topic in the right way, people will open up with you. Uh not always, but oftentimes. And Annie was a nurse, but she was actually bartending in Washington, DC when I met her, and she was behind the bar. And I told her, Look, I'm really (laughs) intrigued into this topic. And we started talking about it. And for her, it was about she'd become a, a nurse, I think, slightly later in life and had gone through the whole training. And But she wanted to have kids. Well, I went three or four years later, I was back in D.C. filming. And I thought, well, Annie, even remember me? Uh, I had an email address. And she said, yeah, actually, I have an update for you. Let's meet. And you see in that unfold where she tells me live on camera that she th- has gone through IVF. She didn't meet the man of her dreams, and age 41, was it 42? She decided to go with a donor loan around. Yeah. Through, yeah, through a sperm donor. And uh, she reveals that it was successful. Three weeks before uh, we're filming, she, her implant know was successful and i got rather excited on camera congratulating her and she reminded me that the outcome of being able to carry a baby to term i mean fetal loss increases quite Mm. rapidly throughout the 30s and then it really rockets from there and i think at her age it would have been a 50 50 likelihood that she'd been able to carry a pregnancy to term and uh, you know sadly a few weeks later i heard from her that she she lost the baby so um yeah another grief
0: you know I mean? yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another one. I, you know, I, 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 you know, become a little bit familiar with the statistics around that. And again, uh, five fertility doctors, in fact, were interviewed for the documentary. Well, I think most of them appear. One in
0: broke it. down just thinking about the fact that she had kids. I think, is that right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they all were
0: consistent. You know, the
1: idea mm. of that of what we're being told in the media that you can have a kid at any
0: age, you know, or, or like a like, bell you know, curve or that rubbish theory or the, the horseshoe theory. This is rubbish. It's just, it's just, it's, I, it frustrates me so much because do I think women are being lied to? But yeah, but who's lying to them? Is it doctors? Is it, like, is it society? Are people lying to men? I don't want this to go off in a complete tangent, but your film very famously received some backlash when you went to put it on at Cambridge University and you were called an anti feminist of all things, Mm -hmm. just for Mm -hmm. telling the truth.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's right. So are we being lied to? Some people are lying. Not everyone. I think mm. there's mostly just mis- misperceptions. So, you know, I think it's probably natural for doctors to promote their services and technologies and to kind of give people the a positive, optimistic, you know, but I, I know someone who is uh, 40, 41, went for IVF, had again decided that they weren't going to meet the right partner, had planned to have more than one child and was just shocked when they were told that the likelihood of it being successful was 15% for the first child. And she was like, What? You know, I'm supposed to be able to do this. I'm only forty and I want two children and she only had one child.
0: And she was probably but, lucky to get that. To be honest. But, but that's right. She, blunt, was very, yeah. Yeah, she was very yeah, she was very, very, very lucky.
1: So, you know, and the media does pick up on, you know, well, one clear point from the fertility doctors is that when you hear about women having children later in the forties or fifties, almost always it's going to be a donor egg. It's not the mother's own egg, it's the egg of a young mother.
0: Oh, they're very rich <laughs> and they don't tell the full story
1: <laughs> but even when you're very rich well, you know, if you're very rich you might have frozen an embryo not an egg and actually completed embryo in your younger years and the successes with that are much higher than your own egg at that age i mean women do not make eggs after they're born effectively the eggs a woman has were created in her mother's womb so any of us Effectively, you know, it was our in our grandmother's wombs Mm. that we were created. You know, the egg came from our grandmother's wombs, and therefore you have a degradation of a quantity and quality throughout a woman's life that never gets replaced. So Mm. it, it gets harder and harder. But I, you know, are we being lied to? I, I think there are people out there who have different agendas who are quite happy that we all think we can have kids to our forties and find out that we can't, you know, it's just terribly, terribly sad. And, you know, the media tend to pick up on stories from those voices much more often that, than they should do.
0: I've got two questions there before we reflect on your journey, Stephen. So this podcast is for everyone, but predominantly here to help men and boys. And as we both know, this issue doesn't just affect women, but men too there are more childless men than women, statistically. And you sat on a group Zoom call with a group called the Childless Men's Community. So what did you find about their stories? And again, I know you don't want to differ and and compare, but how did they maybe share similarities with women you interviewed or differed and in what ways? Yeah,
1: so this was for me probably the, yeah, there's a lot of moving scenes in the documentary, Mm. but this one has a special place because it, Because it's with men and and what I found going around the world, it was much easier to have women open up about this. Men generally just didn't at all. So when I came across the support group and, you know, when they give me permission to include that, uh, you know, you see there a group of men from different countries, different ages, different circumstances, but all sharing this common grief. And maybe I can share... I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Uh, one of the, the men called Tim from Germany mm. who had just given up on IVF with his wife after I think more than 20 years trying, who, you know, was so thankful to have appeared in the documentary that he wrote to me and said, Look, this may be the only legacy I'm left with after I passed. The fact that I appeared in this documentary. Um, you know, so it's you you cannot possibly underestimate the intensity of feelings and i am one of the people who briefly appeared in in the documentary around that time dr robin hadley from the good UK. friend of the pod
0: robin love robin
1: yeah yeah so i've been, managed to connect with him after that and i think recently he had a piece in the guardian perhaps where he yes he did that. yeah
0: yeah shared that as well yeah
1: Yeah, so something like sixty percent of men who are childless, not by choice, suffer from depression. Twenty five percent, this internal anger. It's the first time I'd heard that term, but I I I get it. You know, I get Mm. it. This kind of suffering. You 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 were saying that there's certain voices, uh, including those at Cambridge University, who are very vocal from one side, but the suffering and grief that happens that's a very private thing that happens in people's Mm. homes you don't get people you know protesting walking up and down the street you know saying you know we're grieving children you know that would be absurd but it doesn't mean it's not there and it doesn't mean that it's not in big numbers and yeah cambridge university cancelling this it was a minority of a minority of a minority of students who felt that this topic in itself the topic of motherhood is dangerous for young people for young women and My gosh, I mean, they hadn't even watched the full documentary. They certainly haven't watched the the key points that that we're talking about here. And, you know, the sad thing is, the reason I made it is for people like them to understand that circumstances can happen, even if you've made a decision to have a child or not have a child. There may be other circumstances that come along for those who want children to mean that you end up childless. So Mm. it's, it's really a terribly sad situation we have in universities today.
0: I'm going to ask one more question before I cry anymore, because that question may be really emotional. Several couples that you interviewed, Stephen, almost casually said that they'd adopt if they couldn't conceive naturally, which Mm -hmm. is juxtaposed with the statistic you put in the film that for every US, this is just US, by the way, that for every US infant available for adoption, there are approximately 30 families wanting to adopt. I don't know if you can extrapolate that to the UK, but the, the bureaucracy of the system has obviously been very well documented throughout the years. Is this another ticking time bomb? Do you think of heartbreak and grief?
1: Well, yeah, I, I'm, I don't have specific numbers for the UK, but I don't think it's going to be very different. I mean, you've got several factors here that are already baked in. You know, going back several decades when adoption was relatively common, you had a larger number of teenage pregnancies, unwanted pregnancies. And therefore, you had you know a larger number of available infants available for adoption. That's much, much, much rarer now. People are not generally having children in their teens that that, that they don't want. Yeah, that, and that sexual education, which is
0: a good thing, to you could argue on the other hand, but
1: yeah, yeah. no, and I do too. You yeah, know, that, that's my view. That's a good thing. So the pool of potential children has gone down, but so is the birth rate in all of these countries, you can include. So the number of children in general per couple, you know, is also shrinking. Whereas, I mean, I interview, actually went to an orphanage for part three of the documentary, which uh, you know I'm still fine tuning. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to an orphanage in Chile and the orphanage director explained exactly this, that, that now the number of childless couples hoping to adopt is just growing and growing and growing. You know, more and more people want to do this because there's more childlessness. So the demand is increased. At the same time, the number of available infants is, is rapidly shrinking. And then you have all of the countries, many, many of them have closed their
0: borders to international adoption. So, Mm. um, you know, it started for what's uh, happening in Ukraine, for sure. I mean, there's a surrogacy issue there, but adoption is definitely an issue in in Ukraine with the the war at the moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But even before that, Russia closed its borders to US adoption. There was an incident ten plus years ago, a horrendous incident of of a Russian infant being abused. Um, When this became public news, they closed their borders to it. But since then, so has much of Latin America. Kenya has Tanzania. All these countries are just saying no, that the movement internationally, and it's probably a good thing, is towards looking after the children that need adoption internally within their cultures, within their countries, rather than exporting them. So there's a move away from that. So that's another factor here. We interviewed someone in the documentary who was expecting to pick up a a young child that she was adopting in Guatemala. And the rules just changed that suddenly in the middle of that process, international adoption was no longer allowed. But there's another factor as well, if I could cover, which is in the U.S. now, many, many states encourage repatriation with the biological parents. So if you take Washington State, for example, it is not possible to adopt the child until the child is eight years old.
0: And people Um, people want babies, don't they, on average, because they're more malleable, et cetera, et cetera?
1: Typically, I expect they do. But what this means is for children up to eight, they're in the foster care home system, often passed from parent to parent, in the hope that either the biological parents or an uncle or aunt or grandparent will come back and pick them up one day. Only when that does not happen can you then... uh, you know adopt a foster child who may have had a troubled first eight years so the idea that adoption is a panacea of course it does work in some cases uh, of course it's you know adoption is great it's an essential service but the idea that you can you know as someone once kind of put it that you can you know walk down to the corner shop and just adopt the child you know it, it's it's it sounds simple the way when people say it but it's just not
0: as a final question, as we reflect, Stephen, what has this academic journey in data and now into filmmaking and the films themselves taught you about yourself?
1: Well, gosh, um, that I was in the wrong career, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that I care about people. You know, people ask me why I make a documentary and I, c- I couldn't not. Uh, Did it's you see so it as your responsibility
0: hard. almost that, when you found out?
1: Yeah, I felt yeah. I I had perhaps access to data and some data skills that maybe others might not have. But I also had a bit of time that I could devote to this. You know, I was able to travel partly through my uh, business travels. I thought, well, I can then, you know, at least start to ask questions and find out data. And I'd know people who speak different languages to help out. So I thought I was in a reasonable position to start out. It's taught me about myself. It's, it's a very difficult question but i I now feel this huge responsibility to people and i i believe a difference can be made to all of this by just simply making people aware of what's going on i think that's part of the resolution here that particularly younger people can and should know all of the things we're talking about in this uh, on this podcast so I, i just believe for me that's more important
0: than anything else in life We've talked about Stephen, the data scientist, film producer and director, even though you don't align yourself with that term. Lau, let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Stephen. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Can you take me back to early life, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Stephen we meet here? I think
1: consider myself a pretty resilient person. There's been ups and downs in life, but I'm someone who... I'm a risk taker. You know, started my first very small business at college and went through all sorts of ups and downs. Through, you know, any business owner will will understand it's not just a case of creating a business and then just watching it flourish at all. Even the successful ones will have had dark days, probably many dark days. You know, I, I think through that that can help me develop a resilience knowing that okay, things may not be good right right now. But I've just got to take this day at a time, protect myself in a sense, knowing that if I'm, you know, going in the right direction, that chances are that there'll be brighter days, and perhaps that's applied to much of my life. I think, you know, without wanting to get too personal, the biggest challenge I've ever had to go through is an unexpected divorce. With you know being the father of three children, it was. Yeah, I, I, just through circumstances, which may sound strange, but uh, you know, my family was London-based. My ex-wife wanted to stay in London, and my clients were based in Los Angeles. And so for three years, I was commuting, I mean, literally 10 days a month in London, three weeks in L.A., And after three years, you know, there was no common agreement as to where we might live. We went through every possibility. She wanted to stay close to family and friends. And for me, I think the situation was manageable. Uh, Certainly, as a father, did not expect where it ended up. But, you know, the reality was the marriage had broken down. And um, I was able to stay as much as one can close to my own children. Uh, I still continue to see them perhaps as much as before, you know, the commute still continued. And, you know, there was long summers together, there was every Christmas together, birthdays, et cetera, but suddenly being divorced, not by choice. And in a sense, having a disconnect to one's own kids, that was hard. And, mm. and it was hard on everybody. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, that probably forms a lot of, you know, the mental health journey that I've come through.
0: It's really interesting you say that because, you know, to use the terms that we've used in the last topic, involuntary divorce, whereby you didn't initiate it, mm-hmm. that happens to quite a lot of men. And I think I'm right in saying that the overwhelming majority of divorces are initiated by women. So the shock of it on men is probably more pronounced than it would be on women. And of course, of course, there's issues and there's impacts on, on both sexes. But do you think there is something in that, that the shock of it was perhaps more impactful on you than say, the build-up?
1: Well, and I don't know what the numbers are. I've heard that too, and it may may be the case. I can really only talk from my personal perspective, but the real shock to me was the understanding, the realisation that Mm. the British system was going to favour my ex-wife in terms of being the primary caregiver to the children and that, frankly, I had no chance to try and, uh, in, in any way, you know... It was all. If it was joint custody, it was whether my ex-wife wanted that or not. It was really something that she would control, and realizing I had so little control over what would happen, be that right or wrong. Yeah, I've covered know, this. On the I've
0: covered this on the podcast as well. It is something that isn't being talked about at all. And if you and if you don't talk about it, you are going to make a lot of men become, you know, extreme or men's rights activists and all that sort of stuff.
1: Well, I don't think it's the time. divorce systems, and I, the U.S. I'm pretty familiar with as well. Through uh, even the Japanese system, I'm familiar with through 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 France. Divorce is never nice, never pleasant. But for me, what should be paramount is the children having reasonable access to both parents, you know, going forwards. And in my case, that happened. That was reached voluntarily, and I've no issues over you know how that actually worked out. But through what was a fairly lengthy divorce period, having that held over me that, you know, I mm. could lose. Sort of connect- Damocles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it was if I got custody. Not, maybe not for it your have individual been...
0: case, but I mean, for a lot of men, they might feel that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So divorce systems can only get better than they are right now from everything I'm hearing from people who have gone through them, especially where kids are involved. That's a sweeping statement. But, you know, in our case, it took about three years to complete and and then after that, everything became reasonable very quickly between us. It's just mm. this period where you're going through with lawyers on both sides who are frankly, you know, motivated in High some cash. way to continue <laughs> the antagonism. And that was very hard.
0: Despite the trauma of the divorce and, and, and being separated from your children for that period of time, you obviously see them now. Because of doing the film and coming back to that, are you more grateful and thankful of being a father for your kids and did it change the way that you fathered them because of the subject that you covered in the film
1: well that's an interesting question first i would say that despite being a divorced father it doesn't change anything for me at all they're still my kids and uh, you know wherever in the world i happen to wake up whether they're close to me or, or far and it's usually far they're still here you know they're still you know with me every single moment of every single day and i wouldn't change that for anything and that's perhaps something that's difficult to explain uh, as a parent, but I can't imagine what life would be like, you know, without them. So in a sense, whilst the project is taking me in different avenues, talking to people about children more generally across the planet, uh, you know, my, my own children are, are with me in that journey. In terms of whether it's changed things in terms of, well, perhaps I've become frankly more grateful. Um, it, it certainly may be reflect on my own good fortune of having met someone to have kids with at the right time you know that if that hadn't happened of course i might be someone who fell into you know unplanned childlessness you know so that has certainly become more top of mind for those of us who want children and are lucky enough to have them it's very easy to forget that that was down to chance and that it may not have worked out that way you know if you hadn't been in the right place at the right time
0: one issue as well that you wanted to cover mate and it's something that i can certainly share a lot of similarities with is when one particular individual story you covered in the film was so difficult and so traumatic that you said to me that you felt metaphorically being pulled into that world to quite a problematic degree can you just explain that to me
1: yeah um so there is one recording of course not every interview i did made it into the final reason documentary many many did but there's over 230 people that, that were filmed and you know there was one person who in the end requested that we do not include his interview and that was the only person who who actually came out and requested that and it it was a very very deep story about unplanned challenges uh, i shouldn't give too much more away about okay you know, sure where he's based but you know, after an extended interview, which probably lasted 90 minutes, and then a number of Zoom calls, phone calls, emails beyond that, I felt myself being drawn to this person's story, to want to listen to him, to try and, you know, perhaps just to be there for him in mm. some in, in some ways. And I'm not saying he needed that or wanted that or that I was of any use whatsoever, but it's just something that you know I I I, I felt. And it brought me to a place where for at least a month, it it could have been almost two months, I was in this dark place. You Mm -hmm. know, every day waking up and not understanding why am I, you know, there's all sorts of interesting things going on in my life. Now the documentary's finished. I'm doing these promotions and podcasts. And, you know, it just kept coming back to that one person in that interview.
0: Like an echo. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And perhaps it also caused me to reflect on... My own life, my own good fortune in having kids, for example, but you know I've heard since then that a trained psychologist, which clearly I'm not, is i believe taught not to kind of connect too much with individual people's stories or or that's an element of what you've got to you've got to remain because you can get pulled into them and you can take on a sense of responsibility. So, I'm not saying I'm complaining or I feel negative. It was actually a good experience for me to go through, but in the sense of learning, kind of from another person's perspective, how deep a grief, you know, a deep grief can be. And this would be someone who I know, if he were talking, would want to say that he's come through this, but I can still sense the story, the, his journey, and how tough it was. So, you know, I, I think it probably, if I can broaden this for a second, I get mm-hmm. involved at least weekly, sometimes several times a week talking to people about their personal lives, particularly younger people, 20s, so, <laughs> 30s. And you know, and I, I want to, I'm generally interested in people's lives and I want to kind of hear their story and, and encourage them. But perhaps I've had to learn that there's a certain point that I can't do more, that I can't be the you one can't to be introduce. everyone's
0: therapist, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. So therefore there's been some learnings for me as well yeah. as to the role I can play and the role I mm. cannot or should not play.
0: Widening out this question a little bit if someone like yourself, who's interviewed, like you said, 230 odd people who would be considered an expert in this subject, if you can be pulled into that grief and fairly quickly, how do you think we educate or raise up society's awareness to instantly snap its attention to this issue? Is that unfair of us to ask or not?
1: No, it's very fair. I mean, this is a hidden issue. It's 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 everywhere, yet we can't see it, and most people are frankly completely unaware that people do suffer grief from not having children what we hear in the media is is quite the opposite because there's certain people who there are many people who choose not to have children and do so in I think an appropriate way of just focusing on their own lives but there, there's a minority of a minority of that group who decide to make this very vocal in terms of almost encouraging other people so not just the, the percentage are being vocal but within that the percentage are trying to tell other people how great it is that they should kind of sacrifice any kind of inkling desired of children to do that and, maybe
0: be one of my most hated people I think
1: <laughs> mm.
0: I really don't like them. I really don't. I'm never someone to preach. And this podcast is definitely not about preaching how you should live or not live your life. It's all about giving people the tools if they want to use them and which things work for them, which doesn't. But I hate it when someone preaches a worldview that is not compatible with so many others and yet thinks it's the right thing for them. I hate it. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I do too. And, you know, part of my mission now is to at least try to balance this to explain just how predominant, you know, the, the vast majority of people without children had planned to become parents. That's quite shocking to most people. And also perhaps, to as best I can, point out to the media and to these people that it's not exactly appropriate for you to be preaching a message that's so personal. You know, so I'm not calling them the pied pipers, you know, the, you know tr- trying to, you know, pipe the children away before they're even... Mm-hmm. even born and i think they represent broader ideologies that, that, that well that's a whole other conversation
0: yeah um, yeah we can go to a, we can talk about that a bit offline <laughs> yeah, yeah let's reflect on your mental health journey then mate so similar question as the first topic what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself first of all
1: um well i i think i've had to accept particularly through divorce and, and through different cycles of my business, you know, you know, over the years and my, my own relocations you know, now living in Japan, having lived in the U S for some time and, uh, you know, studied in France and, you know, UK too. So, you know, I've come to understand that, uh, I'm not just saying this, you, you've got to understand that life is going to take its own twists and turns and you've got to be prepared to kind of accept those twists and turns that so little is really under our own control. And if you try and get focused on a life journey that you set yourself upon as the singular most important thing, you have to be prepared for disappointment. And learning a flexibility to adapt, to adapt to whatever circumstance there is and not just see the best in it, because often it's hard to see the best in certain things, but to realize that it's not the end at all. It's just the start of a new chapter that if you don't adapt to, things are probably not going to terribly you know, work out well. I think in my case, I've just decided when these chapters happen, okay, this is a shift unexpected and I'm going to keep doing the things that perhaps I feel I'm good at, that's the things i feel that perhaps can do good to others and see where it leads and i'm not saying it's just always going to work out well but but so far for me you know it, it, it's been you know if nothing else it's been satisfying to you know mm. take on challenges now in terms of the mental health side that that needs resilience that needs the ability to just accept things for the way they are and take it one day at a time literally and you know taking hope from the smaller things that happen and then very often i think the world looks favorably or life looks favorably or the universe looks favorably when you do have this resilience and this positivity or maybe it's just the reality that mm-hmm. something's always going to happen to you know give you uh, better options than you might be able to perceive today so i'm not sure if that's a good answer or not no i but, think that uh... is a good answer mate
0: yeah thank you for that as a final question if you could go back and talk to the steven who was beginning to fall down this rabbit hole into the world of birth rates and population collapse or the Stephen who was having an attempted cancellation at Cambridge University, or the Stephen who was struggling to come to terms with the shock of his divorce, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd just keep going. Maybe that's a cliche, but
1: yeah, I would just say keep going. And I think that back in those days, I think the divorce was the hardest one. I mean, that was really brutal. So if I was to talk to myself in any former times that would be been during those days, and just to you know let myself know that this is going to work out okay even with the kids the kids situation so those days i think the voice that i want to be hearing and i want to be sharing with anybody like you know we all have dark days we all have dark moments things don't always work out the way any of us want but just keep going
0: We've come to our final topic of conversation, Stephen, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. If we have time, it's a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate?
1: Good. Yeah, I feel, frankly, that I've learned to adapt to multiple different situations, stresses in life. I've been pulled many different ways through different scenarios. And I'd have to say I feel in a good
0: place. Excellent. And if you felt comfortable saying, what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Um... Mental health issues. Anything diagnosed or anything like that? Yeah.
1: No, I I don't have any diagnosis of of anything. I I think we all probably suffer from some things. I'm not going to kind of (laughs) facetiously say I don't have any things, but no, I've not been diagnosed with anything
0: now. Okay. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind?
1: Probably, you know, just after it started to have a family, you know, so probably around 30, early 30s again, just due to the stresses, inevitable mm-hmm. stresses of family situations. Of course, having family is wonderful, but we have our moments. You know? Mm-hmm. you know, I think that was the first time realizing that, okay, I'm not quite in control of everything and every emotion, every point in time. So.
0: And can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how do you reflect on it looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or weight had been lifted or on the other, something easy and normal to do?
1: To be honest with you, I really haven't had a deep conversation except in certain Until (laughs) now. Until now. Well, frankly, there you go. There you go. But I would say during making the documentary, when I did engage in these deep conversations, say about grief of a childless person, it enabled me to kind of open up about, for example, we talked about being divorced not by choice. Mm. I mean, I'd never thought of it that way before, and I don't think others have too. But when people are talking about being childless not by choice, it's like, well... I, I do have children, but I'm, I, I, you know, the divorce in some way dissociated me for the children for periods of time. So I think this conversation has opened up by being prompted by others being open with me. So you know, that, that, that was a, a positive thing.
0: And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, being in a particular social environment, a sound, a sensation, or have you not figured all of them out yet, or don't have any at all?
1: Well, I think I've become very sensitive. I, I care about other people. You know, I'm very sensitive to the feelings of others. And I, I think I always have been, you know, when someone feels sad, I you know, internally feel a bit sad. So when it comes to topics like we've discussed here about people, for example, people pointing fingers at those who don't have children saying, get over it. At least you don't have to get out of bed, you know, feed the kids, whatever. When you hear those kind of comments made online, uh, that really is deeply upsetting to me. So perhaps that's why I've decided to put my head, you know, above the pulpit in a sense, in terms of cancellations at Cambridge or not, that's not, nothing's going to deter me from telling the story and from trying to protect or to be a voice or to share the voice of people within that community.
0: So and conversely then what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health mate or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't.
1: And these aren't you know it's not a particularly formal technique but mm-hmm. I did learn in my early 20s starting a business that I had to have certain days a week when I remove myself from stressful moments and what would happen is I get to a Friday things business-wise were looking tough, I wouldn't allow myself to think about the business till Monday morning. And and it was just trying to compartmentalize the reality that I cannot do anything about the business on a Saturday and a Sunday. I need to escape from the business, escape from that world. And that's something that took a little bit of practice, but I came up with this ability to effectively shut myself off from those concerns and worries, but only for a finite period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At least to come back to it fresh, because I think if I hadn't done that, you know, you'd been dragging yourself down continually. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's good advice or bad advice, but certainly for me, it's something that helped.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. And it's really hard, I think, to switch off when it's your baby. You know, I find it hard to switch off vent and thinking about podcast guests. I'm always on Twitter, even though I hate being on Twitter, because I have to always think of podcast guests to have on. But then you also have to have an off switch. And if you don't Mm -hmm. have an off switch, it's going to consume you, isn't it? Regardless of Mm -hmm. what you do.
1: Yeah, it's a healthy thing and I don't have a you know, a, a formula as to how to do that. Maybe it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 easier when it's a business because literally you've got or you used yeah. to have and, you know, yeah, a weekend when there's little you could do. So maybe that was kind of a, a more idealistic circumstance that may not apply to everybody, but it certainly is, is something I still try to adopt today, just
0: mm. you know, not allowing myself to carry stresses permanently. What is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health now it can be mental health or self help related it doesn't exclusively have to be and if you can't think of a book a album tv show any piece of popular culture
1: oh you're going to hit me as your worst guess ever because i i don't think i've read a self help
0: book uh
1: music okay so for me yeah. oh this is this is huge listening to music has always been a huge part of my life and it's it's gone through various cycles of who i care to, to listen to more mm-hmm. recently it's been jazz you know just
0: oh okay uh, or Ezra Collective yeah you like a big fan of Ezra Collective
1: is that a per- I don't know I'm not going to say no UK yeah. jazz
0: band they're a UK jazz <laughs> but they just won the Mercury Prize they oh, re- highly recommend them if you like jazz
1: I'm still into kind of Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone from oh, the kind of early 50s jazz. And- okay. <laughs> <laughs> no I like a lot of jazz and I try and go to live music events as much as possible but I also find that music is incredibly therapeutic for me you know I literally can feel you know the tension the pressure just Disappear. That's why Um, I go to a lot of
0: gigs. It's escapism for me. It's my church. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Mm. So maybe that's why I haven't necessarily read self-help books. But I think you know, music really. Without music, I wouldn't be able to you know switch off. Let's Mm. say in in the way the way I've been able to. So yeah, music.
0: Yeah, yeah. I definitely recommend listening to Ezra Collective or any early Gregory Porter or Kamasi Washington. Those are the kind of jazz acts. I don't listen to a lot of jazz, but those are the jazz acts that I like and. I recently went to Oslo in April to visit some family and I went to a uh, Norwegian jazz club. So if you're ever in Oslo, go to the Herr Nilsson Jazz Club. I'm sure you
1: will. I will. I try and find jazz clubs wherever I go. So, it's a very good uh, one. It's on my it's list now. <laughs>
0: Great. If there was a mantra in life, mate, that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why?
1: Gosh, you know, just to explain, I was so interested to come on the podcast because I've seen mental health challenges that I'd never experienced or been close to through making this documentary, just people literally breaking down in tears Mm. in front of me multiple times. Mm. And not always, but there was a deepness to this suffering that I realized I bore a responsibility and I I was very keen to kind of come share share that with you. I have to say, I've come back For me, the word being resilience, it's just something that I've had to learn from the earliest times and might be part of my personality. Maybe that's a disappointing answer, but it's just given me the ability, I think, to just go through life and its ups and downs and take on risks and challenges and try new things that perhaps I wouldn't do otherwise. Mm. And that may or may not help other people. It may be overly simplistic. I feel it probably is. But that really has just allowed me to just to build, you know, a way forward by just protecting myself from whatever's happening in the, in the here and now.
0: I've got two questions left. The first one is, what do you love about yourself?
1: Well, I can't say resilience again because I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'm not going to fall in the trap of saying love anything about myself. You know, I, uh, yeah, well, I. <laughs>
0: Any qualities you can pick out?
1: Uh, I think Empathy. I can relate to other people in a very deep way, and I don't know if it's connected to that, but I do like listening. Mm. I, you know, really feel privileged, honoured when someone wants to open up and tell me something. You know, you see
0: into their souls, don't you, mate? That's the why I, I describe he, it as.
1: Yeah. And and you, often when you then realize that people actually wanted or needed someone to talk to, and you're able to empathize and listen, you know, I sometimes wonder why that is. It, it's meant that oftentimes the responsibility comes back in me to try and give, you know, advice or, res- you know, to help them resolve a situation. And often I can't. And now mostly I'll tell them that, but I'll always be there to listen. So empathy and the ability to listen, I think, are characters that I, you know, I'm glad I've got
0: and as a final question, this is a, a very broad one, and I know you'll have a good answer based on our conversation. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly they want to do it?
1: Well, I've seen how important it is to open up, and I've I've seen how men through the support group that you mentioned earlier can open up and can clearly benefit from it i mean if they're given the
0: space and if they're listened to most importantly i don't think a lot of people are listening to men right now
1: yeah and that, that might not change you know that that's a broader societal thing you know I, i'd like it to but i think the one thing people can do is either form or find a support group and a support group you know, who needs support groups as, as a man but actually what you find is a group of people going through this you find camaraderie
2: Mm. That was a brotherhood. Very clear. Yeah, it is a brotherhood. It's, yeah. it's yeah.
1: a brotherhood. It absolutely is. And I imagine, you know, I don't know, but imagine that, you know, these brotherhoods extend into deeper friendships that might, you know, become, you know, more than just about the original purpose that, that, that people connected. But I've seen how those groups of brotherhoods can be exceptionally positive. So I just encourage people to consider that.
0: Stephen, it has been an absolute pleasure. This has been One of my favourite podcasts, I would say, despite the fact that I've cried on it. So thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate.
1: It's been a privilege. Thank you, Freddie.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Stephen for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I will, of course, put a link to where you can watch part one of Birth Gap and where you can find Stephen on social media and find out more about his work in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the Venters who've tuned in. I will sign us off by saying, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about the podcast and Vent. If you're feeling generous, please either write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or go to our Patreon and support us at www.patreon.com slash Vent We are completely crowdfunded, so please do consider supporting us there and we are completely independent. You can also make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or you can buy a VENT t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.